Dr. Dobson Gupta, I just want to talk about you a little bit before we go to the questions from the next medical student. You got your fellowship in medical oncology from the University of South Florida, and you did your residency in internal medicine at the Christ Hospital in Illinois. You became a medical doctor, actually, in Kampur University in India. You did your pre-medical in Delhi University in India. You were born in India. Right now, you are a physician sub-investigator at the Georgia Cancer Specialist, a subsidiary of Northside Hospital Cancer Institute. You are board certified in internal medicine, medical oncology, and you are a member of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, Georgia Society of Clinical Oncology, and you have worked in the VA before. You've worked at uh, Dwight David Eisenhower Army Medical Center. You also have a lot of research experience. While you were at the Army Medical Center, you were principal investigator for NSABP from June 99 till now. You have studied patients receiving chemotherapy. You've done studies on, on that. And um, you've done, you know, studies on different kinds of chemotherapy. You know, I just want you to tell us about getting to this point because we do have some of the students looking at oncology. Can you explain this career path? And if you were going to give them a piece of advice for their education, what can you tell them? Well, you know, my my opinions are obviously biased <laughs> because I'm in this field of oncology. I think oncology is one of the best fields to go into because that's where you can really make a change, make a difference in people's lives. And there are so many new developments and research and treatments becoming available for the betterment, for the improvement of patients' lives not just how long people are living, but improving the quality of life. So again, my biased opinion is that there's not too many other fields in medicine where you you can do that, except perhaps yours, (laughs) where you can bring a new life (laughs) into the world. So that's what actually I've been telling. And, you know, I have three children and they are all in medical line. And my oldest child, uh, he's doing fellowship in oncology. So he's, <laughs> I was able to convince him <laughs> that oncology is the best path forward. And then my other uh, two children, you know, they have also followed the medical profession and are MDs. So that, that's what I would advise anybody learning medicine or trying to decide where to go, which field to take. What is that thing that got you through school, you were able to come from India. What was that thing? Well, you know, we all come to this place because this is a land of opportunity and dreams and you can achieve here what you probably cannot achieve back home. And you have a lot more opportunities into studying and doing research and moving forward in this field because you have so many more resources here. So I think that's a big draw. Dr. Gupta, so we've talked about, you know, just the red blood cells 
anemia, we've talked about the white blood cells with leukemia. There's another blood component, the platelets, that is also very important. And for us, I know for pregnant women, the platelets are very important, especially for conditions like preeclampsia. We're watching the platelet levels and stuff like that. Can you just maybe, you know, educate us on some of the things the platelet does and when it can become a problem? Yeah, so platelets get lower. The report comes out as platelet count being low. That's very common in pregnancy. And the most common condition is called gestational thrombocytopenia. And that's just a direct result of pregnancy that the platelet count is a little bit lower. In this condition, the platelet counts almost always stay above 100,000. The normal is about 140 or 150,000 depending upon the lab but it can drop down to 100,000 range and which likely does not have any clinical consequences. If it's less than 100,000, then that can be a problem or that needs to be looked into more closely. So the first thing we do is take a look at the smear or the blood film itself and make sure there is no clumping of the platelets because if there is a clumping, then the count will be a falsely low count and the the platelet count itself may be enough or may be normal. If it's not clumping, then we have to look for other conditions like you mentioned, preeclampsia or eclampsia, or if it's immune thrombocytopenia, or if it's some other infections like hepatitis C or HIV that can cause or lupus can cause it, or if there is something else going on, what is called DIC, if there is an infection, or if there is something more serious, so what's called TTP, where the body itself is destroying the platelets along with other organs. So platelet management can be an issue. And the lower the platelet count is, the more risky it is. But most of the time, if we can diagnose it in time, it can be treated and can result in a successful pregnancy. So... When the platelet is attacking itself, can that affect the baby if you have TTP? ITP. ITP. TTP. Yes. Yeah. So the baby is usually spared, but many times if the mother is having ITP, then the same process can be going on with the baby as well. And the baby needs to be checked after delivery for its platelet counts as well. What are some of the things you use for treatment? you know, if you have all these low platelet conditions? So the most uh, common reason would be ITP, which is immune system destroying the platelets. And there we give a short course of uh, steroids. If that doesn't work, we give some immune cells, immune proteins like IVIG to block off the immune attack on the platelets. And that's very helpful and it's very, it works very quickly within a day or two. Someone with a low platelet, can they get an epidural? Because you said there might be some risks. And I, I presume some of the risks will include bleeding. Right. And, you know, an epidural involves like in, a needle prick in your back. What are some of the consequences of very low platelets getting an epidural or maybe needing a C-section? Yeah, as far as epidural, and I'm sure you deal with this a <laughs> <laughs> lot more than I do, I think the cutoff is close to 100,000, but I think it depends more on the 
person doing the procedure, what their comfort level is. Because if it's ITP, if it's immune-based, then these platelets, even though the count is low, but their function, their capability of working is higher. Because these platelets are larger platelets, they are younger platelets, because the platelets are being destroyed in the body, and the body is making more platelets. So these platelets that are there are younger, they can fight better, Mm. (laughs) (laughs) and they are larger, their size is larger. So even though the number is small, but they functionally, they may be a lot higher. So that somewhat depends on the operator. But in other conditions, usually 100 is a cutoff for giving epidural. And again, for if patient needs a cesarean section, if it's ITP, then usually it can be done without any complications. Wow, thank you. Another condition is, you know, if a woman has what we call a DVT, a deep vein thrombosis, a clot in the veins that has a chance of, or a risk of traveling to the lungs and becoming very serious illness. And we give blood thinners to dissolve this clot. That's part of the treatment. Now, if a woman has had this before pregnancy and she's been treated, how do blood thinners come into play with pregnancy? So most of the blood thinners do not go very well with pregnancy because they can affect the fetus. So if they are on what is called vitamin K antagonist like Coumadin, which is used to be the most common medication used in this situation, or if they are on the newer medications like Eliquis or Xeralto, they haven't been studied in enough detail about damaging the fetus. So these drugs we do not recommend at this point. So the only safe drug is actually heparin. There is the regular heparin, which is called unfractionated heparin, but it needs more amount of volume. So it's not very practical to give a good dose of heparin. The other option, what we use is called low molecular weight heparin, which can be given in small volume and effect or work just as well. And then it depends on the on the category. Why does this woman need blood thinner? If the risk is low, then a small dose, what is called prophylactic dose, can be given. And it's an injection, just like an insulin injection, subcutaneous injection, that's given once a day. If it's the risk is high, then a higher dose and twice a day is recommended. And as it gets closer to the labor and delivery, this low molecular weight heparin is converted into unfractionated heparin because it can be reversed very easily. And the half-life is only four hours. So it can be stopped four hours or eight hours before the expected delivery time or if there is a C-section planned. And it can be reversed very easily if there is a bleeding complication. And that's how we manage uh, blood thinners or anticoagulation during pregnancy. Do some people have to be on blood thinners for life? Some people do. They may have an underlying condition that makes them more prone to getting a blood clot. And the risk of keeping them on lifelong blood thinners is actually lower, a lot lower, than their risk of getting a new blood clot if you take them off the blood thinners. So this is the indication to keep them. What what are some of the conditions? Uh, Can you think of one or two that could make someone be on lifelong anticoagulation? 
So some of the simple ones are if somebody has had repeated blood clots, especially what is called pulmonary embolism or a blood clot in the lungs, because that can be serious and even fatal. Now, if they have had more than one, then they are already telling you that there is some issue that they are forming more blood clots than normal. And this needs to be prevented. And they need to be on lifelong blood thinners. Then if somebody has a blood clot and has a condition, a genetic condition, like a factor V mutation, what is called Leiden mutation, or factor II mutation, or if they have some abnormal proteins in the blood, what is called a lupus anticoagulant, that makes them more prone to getting a blood clot. So as long as they have that circulating in the blood, they need to be treated to prevent this protein into forming more blood clots. You know, at times we see some of these conditions in young women that take oral contraceptives that have estrogen in them. Yes. And some of the young women also smoke. Is there like a danger to having some of these conditions, taking birth control pills and smoking? That certainly increases the risk of blood clots, but there the solution is relatively simple. (laughs) Maybe not for smoker, maybe it can be very difficult to quit smoking, but at least with oral contraceptive use, the uh, choices are there that it can be managed very easily. So, but at times, if the provider does not know that this patient has this underlying genetic mutation, you know, like factor V Leiden mutation. And, you know, because at times the first thing that providers reach to is just a combination a birth control pill. So at times that first clot could happen with neither the patient nor the provider knowing the genetic risks towards forming excessive blood clots. That's true. And that's what happens in reality because the person or the woman gets put on oral contraceptive and develops a blood clot and then she is investigated and sometimes she is found to have this mutation, leaden mutation. This woman does not necessarily need to be on lifelong blood thinners because she can just quit her oral contraceptive so she is already minimizing the risk of a blood clot. You know, one other issue I wanted us to talk a little bit some more about is this sickle cell disease in pregnancy. Sickle cell disease, pregnancy puts you at risk for anemia. That's something that can happen in pregnancy. Now you have another condition that can make anemia cumulative in your body. This means less oxygen to the baby. What is the spectrum of sickle cell disease in pregnancy? That can be challenging. Now, ideally, there should be a preconception genetic counseling of some sort if the woman has sickle cell anemia of her and her partner to find out if the partner has any sickle cell as to what the offspring will be affected or not, what the risks are. It can be possible to find out about the child by chorionic villus sampling if the fetus has sickle cell or not. So that's a biopsy of somewhere around the placenta bed. Right. And they are developing some testing of maternal blood where just a blood sample from the mom can find out the DNA of the baby and detect the changes if that DNA has sickle cell changes in it or not. 
so the mom so they can know at least know yes. right and yeah. is it you said for the testing of the mom if she has sickle cell anemia what if she just has the trait do we want to do genetic counseling for both her and her partner yes because if the partner has sickle cell disease or sickle cell trait then the risk for the child can be calculated because this is what is called autosomal recessive means if there is in the dna helical there is a, a pair of genes so if there is only one gene affected there is sickle cell trait if mother has sickle cell anemia and father has sickle cell trait then you can estimate what the risk will be for the baby and as i said you can even diagnose whether the baby has sickle cell or not now as far as managing sickle cell anemia in a woman who gets pregnant first of all their medications need to be adjusted if they are taking a medication like hydroxyurea for their sickle cell that needs to be stopped because that can potentially damage the fetus harm the baby if they are on iron chelation because if they have been getting transfusions you know which is a typical story for sickle cell anemia they need to get frequent transfusions and they get iron overload and they are on medications called iron chelating agents to reduce their iron levels so these medications have to be stopped and then the main management actually comes towards the delivery towards the end of the third trimester period where uh, some people advocate transfusing blood prophylactically or routinely to minimize the complications especially if the woman is having frequent pain attacks if the anemia is severe if the woman has other organ damage like kidney damage or heart damage then they need to be supported a little bit more than a typical sickle cell patient or sickle cell anemia lady their oxygen saturation needs to be monitored if it's less than 95% they need supplemental oxygen they need to be hydrated well so they don't get sickle cell attack and if they are on taking opioids for pain control then the baby needs to be monitored after delivery for opioid withdrawal syndrome and hydroxyurea and the iron chelation can be resumed if the mother is not going to breastfeed the baby so those agents affect breastfeeding yes wow women with sickle cell are they just faring better these days sickle cell and pregnancy you know just looking at over the span of your career for instance are they faring better nowadays i would like to say yes but actually i'm disappointed in that field in the lack of progress that has been made so far but right now i think there is some exciting research going on where they are attempting to actually cure this sickle cell anemia by two or three different mechanisms and that's very exciting and i'm hopeful then in the next few years not in distant future but in the near future we may have a cure so what is one piece of advice that you would give a young person you know looking at your story all the way from india to america and you know running a successful practice you know having your children in the medical profession what is one piece of advice you would give somebody interested in this field the field of medicine is of course helping other people and relieving some of the suffering as much as you can of people who are going through an illness 
and a provider or a doctor has to be compassionate has to listen and try to identify what the problem is where the doctor can be helpful and it's not only restricted to a prescription or a medication because it's improving the aim is to improve overall quality and minimize the suffering of the person that's what i would suggest to pay attention to what the patient is saying what the patient is telling us and sometimes the patient is saying one thing but the patient may mean something little different and if you can bring that out from the patient and help the patient that way that's very important I'm going to go back to Mingjin Ra. She's a third-year medical student. She talked about pagophagia. It's excessive consumption of ice or iced drinks, and is popularly regarded as a novel manifestation of pica. Historical sources reveal that not only are there warnings in the writings of both Hippocrates and Aristotle. concerning the dangers of excessive intake of cold or iced water but a series of medical works from the 16th century on incorporate discussion and illustrative case history about the detrimental effect of immoderate usage of cold water ice and snow frequently in the context of disordered eating the craving to chew eyes is pagophagia and i know we talked about pica a little bit in the past is there like a difference or how can you relate both of them well pagophagia is just one aspect of pica pica is a tendency or craving for any material that's not nutritious and that includes eyes chalk mud pagophagia only applies to person craving for ice so it's part of pica now as far as causing damage or danger to the body so the pagophagia itself is i don't think is the problem because that's just a symptom or a manifestation of iron deficiency the main problem that the body has is the anemia or the low iron and it's not restricted to only anemia because low iron can have other detrimental effects on the body people can have restless leg syndrome that's so common and that's treatable if the iron is low if iron is the reason for that there have been some animal studies which indicate that there may be problems with good development of the brain if there is low iron so the aim is to correct the underlying problem which is the low iron so don't drink too much cold water would you still say that or yeah i don't think it really matters <laughs> I mean if if somebody chews a lot of ice you know they can uh, maybe uh, damage their teeth but other than that I don't think it's hurtful to the body thank you that's a funny concept now for the issue of medical oncology I know that's another area of specialization of yours can you tell us about some of the conditions you see commonly as could affect a young woman or a pregnant woman Well the most common cancer that we see in uh, pregnant women is breast cancer we can also see colon cancer we can also see leukemias in younger population including pregnant women and that's a challenge 
especially leukemia is particularly a big challenge. And as far as chemotherapy and using drugs, they are relatively safe in second and third trimester. So most of these cancers are manageable even in pregnancy. Although, you know, we have to take some special precautions. Now, in pregnancy, the breast is, you know, enlarging, it's tender. How can you easily diagnose breast cancer in a pregnant woman? So the most common symptom that leads to diagnosis of breast cancer is a lump. So if a person feels a lump in the breast, and it's usually not painful, and if it's a new lump and that's growing in size, then that needs to be brought to the medical attention right away. And the other thing is, even though the both the breasts may be enlarging and sore or tender, but if there is a particular area that's out of proportion, and looks bigger or is more painful or tender, then that may point to a problem in that particular area. Would you do mammogram in pregnancy? Mammogram can be done, but even the ultrasound can be done very safely. And that can give us a diagnosis. Are there conditions of the nipple or conditions that don't look typically like your typical breast cancer, like inflammation that is actually breast cancer, but, you know, looks different, like, you know, Page's disease or inflammatory breast cancer? Do you see that more? Can you see that in women in the reproductive age group? Well, rarely. We, can, we see that. Not very common. So if a woman presents with a red, inflamed, tender, enlarged breast, she's usually treated with an antibiotic, thinking that this may be an infection, like a cellulitis. And if it doesn't get better, then that needs to be evaluated further. And it could be inflammatory breast cancer. And, you know, you also mentioned colon cancer. I thought older women had colon cancer. So do you see colon cancer in women in the childbearing age? Yes, we do. And especially in African-American women, we see it somewhat more in the younger population. I still remember my youngest patient of colon cancer was age 18. How did she present? How did you have the index of suspicion to know this was colon cancer? Understandably, you know, that's how... That diagnosis is delayed because you don't expect an 18 or 20 or 25-year-old person who is losing some blood in the stools to be having colon cancer. What you normally think, think is that this is probably hemorrhoid and there is some bleeding. And not only on the part of the doctor, but also on the part of the patient. Patient just thinks it's a hemorrhoid bleeding and just keeps on going and going. And eventually when it gets worse or it becomes more painful or a person develops like a blockage, severe constipation, then that leads to further evaluation and diagnosis. Is, is the prognosis good? Is it, you know, if you make an early diagnosis and treatment in an 18-year-old? If you can make an early diagnosis, then yeah, prognosis is very good. But that's where the issue comes in. Usually earlier the age, the younger the age, the delayed diagnosis is there because you don't expect it. So basically what you are saying is if any woman has any symptom that is persistent, uh, just, you know, unusual but persistent, seek help. Yes. 
And it's very, relatively, it's easy to diagnose because now you have all these instruments. You can do, put a flexible sigmoidoscopy, just take a look inside and make sure it's nothing serious. And then the other thing you talked about was leukemia, which is just, I guess, abnormal blood counts. Can you just explain to us in layman's terms and how you can see that in a woman in childbearing age? Yeah, so the leukemia is just a cancer of the blood or cancer most commonly of the white blood cells. So the way it's diagnosed is when a pregnant woman or any person presents for some lab work or presents to the doctor, a lab work is done, CBC is done, patient may be feeling weak, tired, maybe having infections because their resistance, their immunity is very low. And the blood count will show that a white count is really high, very high, typically. And the normal blood counts, like the red blood cell, the anemia would be there, and the platelets would be very low. And then you need to take a look at what type of cells are high, and that they normally need a bone marrow biopsy for diagnosis, and that's how it's diagnosed. And the treatment is? So the treatment depends on, you know, what it is because uh, there can be different types of leukemias. And the treatment for an acute leukemia is urgent. So I think that has to take priority, even in a pregnant patient. It's not something you can wait it out. You may be able to, but generally speaking, no. It has to be treated, and the treatment is, is, can be rough, can be very intensive, may require ICU stay. So that, that's challenging. And we've seen women post-leukemia treatment that are able to get pregnant. Are you seeing more of the patients treated getting, you know, pregnant now? Yeah, the thing with acute leukemia is that if you can treat it and put it into a remission, many times that would be a cure. So they can have a normal life expectancy and they can have a normal pregnancy. Same with breast cancer. If there's a breast cancer survivor, can have a normal pregnancy. Wow. This is all great information that you're giving us, Dr. Gupta. This is, it's good news. You know, it's, it's things are not as bleak right. as they, they were in the past with, I guess, modern oncology, right? Yes, yes. So, you know, if you are going to give some final thoughts or advice to a woman in a low-resource setting, either in Africa, in India or in rural Forsyth, Georgia, about how to not become anemic in pregnancy or how to improve their hematologic health the best way they can before pregnancy, during or after pregnancy. What piece of advice would you give? So I would say, you know, and I think the underlying problem is lack of resources. You don't have resources for medical care or for medications which can be expensive. So uh, what I would advise is to take an iron supplement and it really doesn't matter what compound or what salt it is. It can be the cheapest iron supplement you can buy over the counter. Just take an iron supplement once a day. If you don't tolerate it once a day, take it every other day. And take folic acid. And because the folic acid is something that's uh, utilized more when there is a more cell turnover. So if you have any underlying blood condition that has not been diagnosed, 
you can correct that or you can be just to be on the safe side take a folic acid supplement and um, just have a good normal healthy diet so good so i just want to thank you so very much for coming to our podcast this is educating women all over the world the medical students are grateful to you for answering their questions and i am just very grateful to you for coming to our podcast this morning well thank you dr sogade it was nice on the podcast with you thank you so much thank you you are so welcome